This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Jürgen Tautz from Würzburg University. Jürgen joined me on the phone to talk about his new book, The Honey Factory, Inside the Ingenious World of Bees. He co-authored it with his colleague, Deirdrick Steen. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. We are in Melbourne today, of course, but I'm very lucky to have an international guest with me on the phone. His name is Jürgen Tautz. He is Emeritus Professor at the University of Würzburg, and he is an expert in biology, zoology, and the study of insects. And he's co-written a book with Deirdrick Steen, and uh, it is called called The Honey Factory, Inside the Ingenious World of Bees. And I welcome Jürgen now. Hello there. Hello, Amy. It's great uh, talking to you and I hope you are okay today. Oh, thank you very much. And you, thank you for joining me all the way from Munich. No, that's no problem. Uh, in fact, I sit a little bit away from Munich. It's uh, Würzburg, but it's only a few hundred kilometers, so short distance for Australia standards. Yes, that's very true. It's all a bit different in Europe, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and the same goes for honeybees, that you have um, specific kinds of bees in Europe, don't you, that are different from other bees you might come across in the world? Yes, so the uh, term bees is, uh, from a zoological perspective, not very uh, well identifiable. So we have, uh, like, uh, solitary bees, which are bees which do not make uh, colonies, which live uh, for themselves. Then we have so-called stingless bees, which uh, are native at uh, your country. So, and in, in fact, about 40 years ago, I studied them in uh, Queensland in Australia a little bit. And then we have the uh, real honeybees, which have not been native to Australia, but they were introduced by the uh, people which uh, came to Australia. And uh, honeybees uh, make colonies, big uh, colonies, and details about which we may speak a bit later, I think. Yes, because uh, honeybees have been used by humans for many, many years, and you do start the book talking about how humans initially, when they were trying to take honey from hives, would almost really destroy the beehive um, and the, the colony that they were interfering with just to access the honey um, as a source of food. It's really interesting that beekeeping and the history of beekeeping has evolved over time. How much better have humans got now of treating bees because we use them for so many different things that they create? So since uh, millennia, uh, two products by honeybees are have been collected by humans. It's a honey as a food and a wax as a very important material for different purposes. And uh, in the beginning, uh, humans went out in the uh, woods where uh, wild honeybee colonies uh, were living in hollow trees or in the cracks of uh, rocks. And uh, in order to get access to honey and uh, to wax, they, as you said, uh, had to destroy the, the combs, uh, the nest of the honeybees. So that was very disadvantageous for both uh, sides. It was very painstaking for humans, uh, taking literally because they were stung uh, badly by the bees which uh, defended uh, their nests. And it was a disaster for the bees because the nests were destroyed completely. And uh, over the millennia, humans uh, learned how to treat bees uh, yeah, in a way that uh, is advantageous for both uh, partners. And uh, finally, so what the, the stage that we find at the moment is that uh, beekeepers, uh, which are a few of them are professionals, most of them are very enthusiastic uh, hobby beekeepers. They are using artificial housing which in a way uh, mimic uh, hollow trees and uh, which are made such that bees can make a comfortable living on the one hand, but uh, that it makes it also fairly simple for the beekeepers to take the products from the uh, hive that he wants to take. 
Yes, that's true. And you talk about the new types of hives that we're using at the moment to try and reduce the interference that we're creating when we try and take honey from the combs. And you say that um, there are two main functions or purposes of a comb. The queen bee must have somewhere to lay the eggs that will develop then into young bees and she lays those eggs in comb cells and then of course uh, they also use those comb cells around the eggs to store food such as pollen and honey which they rely on to survive through the winter. So those really important resources are there that the bees need and then Presumably, humans would be taking the excess honey that they don't necessarily require for their survival. Yes, so the, the combs uh, by themselves, they ha- have multiple purposes. So the two, two most important uh, you mentioned already, so they are home for the young, for the larvae, which are raised by the colony, and the storage room for pollen and for, for honey that is made by, by the honeybees, but uh, the comb also serves as a telephone net, if you want uh, to call it like this, so honeybees inside the nest live in total darkness, and uh, in order to communicate, they use uh, very, very, very slight vibrations uh, they create as signals, and that run across the combs and spread messages between the members of a colony. And there are much more functions of the comb, but they are less interesting for the beekeeper, they are more interesting for the bees by themselves. And just as you say, the less uh, destruction humans do to these combs, uh, the less uh, stress it is for the honeybees, because in order to rebuild and to fix the combs, they even have to produce the material by themselves. So honeybees, uh, different to us humans, do not take material out from nature to build their home, but they make it by themselves. So they produce the wax by themselves. And uh, this is a very painstaking business. And uh, the less they have to do it, the better it is for the, for the uh, bees. And it's really interesting the way that uh, you describe how bees construct their comb um, because you talk about the fact that from the age of about 10 days, a young worker bee is able to sweat tiny wax plates from eight small groups of glands on the underside of her abdomen. How do they construct the comb using the wax because you talk about the fact that the comb is very, very stable and that they are essentially building a very strong structure, almost like pre-stressed concrete. Yes, so there are different, or there are, there are several aspects which are really astonishing about combs. So one you mentioned already, it is uh, extreme stability, therefore uh, lightweight uh, structures which have to be very stable are imitating the combs of honeybees like in uh, in, in, in ships or airplanes for example um, and, and what is also amazing about the combs is the almost Christ-like uh, regularity so the angles are perfect and the the length of the walls are perfect and everything is perfect like in a crystal and this made great uh, People like uh, Johannes Kepler, a famous astronomer from the Middle Ages, um, almost 500 years ago, to formulate the notion honeybees must have a sense of mathematics that they can make such uh, regular construction. And uh, now today we know due to modern technologies that allows us to investigate in great depth how honeybees uh, make these structures to know what's really going on. So honeybees uh, in first hand build the cells uh, as uh, cylinders. So their own body is the basis around which they build their round uh, cylinders. Um, And uh, they pack these cylinders very densely together. And uh, then they creep inside these cylinders and they, they heat them up. So honeybees have the ability to create body temperatures up up to 44 centigrades, which is really amazing. And at these temperatures, the wax becomes soft 
and starts uh, kind of melting and flows uh, by itself into this regular structure. So it is not that the bees uh, firsthand create this hexagonal cells, they start creating round uh, cells, but by warming them up, uh, the cells by themselves, uh, in a way of uh, self-organizing uh, process, the outcome is the census crisis that we see. Yes, and you say that combs need to be not too hard and not too soft and the idea of temperature as you said is very important that bees can create and regulate the temperature inside a hive to make sure that the comb is of the right temperature how do they do that and what is the right temperature for a comb to exist in okay so the uh the region inside a honeybee colony uh, which needs to be uh, regulated very very precisely is the brood nest so honeybees uh, during their life uh, undergo a development uh, we know from butterflies so we have a caterpillar then we have a pupa and finally we have a butterfly and in honeybees very same root of development we have larvae inside the bee nest we have pupa inside the bee nest and then finally uh, the adult honeybees are hatching and uh, the pupa the pupal stage lasts for uh, yeah, around uh, 10 days and this is the period in which the, the nervous system of the final honeybee is developing the brain uh, is developing and it is interesting and i think fascinating that the honeybees need for the for their brain development almost the same temperature which is our human body temperature so uh, we humans are running at around uh, 36 centigrade not because our heart and lung and kidney but because our head had, had to be has to be uh, uh, warm as this our brain has to be warm as this and the brain development of bees needs the same temperature. And uh, the honeybees create this temperature, this heat, by the strongest machine each honeybee uh, possesses, which is uh, the wing muscle, musclature, so the flight, the flight musclature, the muscles which move the wings uh, when honeybees are at, at, uh, flying around. And uh, so what, what, what the honeybees can do is what maybe some people uh, listening to your <laughs> to your broadcast have done a driver's license examination which is um, they push full acceleration and do not uh, release the clutch so bees can uh, in, a, in a kind of detach their wings not uh, really losing their wings but decoupling the wings uh, while they're running their flight muscles and uh, so they do not uh, uh, fly away but stand in position but the flight muscles are heating up uh, uh, greatly and uh, this temperature is then spread in the in the brood uh, nest to neighboring cells in which then pupa are resting and waiting for, for getting uh, warming up bees can regulate this temperature uh, extremely precise in their antenna they have uh, sensory cells with which they can measure temperature to amazing uh, precision. So they can detect temperature differences of 0 0.05 centigrade. And uh, if they note, uh, notice that it's too warm or too cold, then they compensate. So if it's too cold, I just explained, they are heating it up. But if it's too hot, which uh, can happen easily, like in Australia, then they have trick uh, which we humans also use for uh, room climatization, which is uh, are certain bees which uh, go out in the fields, uh, collect the water, bring the water inside the nest, and then uh, another bunch of bees acts as living uh, ventilators. They, they stand still, but they uh, vibrate their wings, create a slight wind, and this wind, uh, together with the water inside the nest, uh, leads to evaporation, and this evaporation leads to cooling, just like our cooling systems of our rooms is working. 
And the outcome is that this pupa are then kept at this temperature between uh, 34 and 36 uh, centigrade to an amazing precision. That is really amazing. I can't even believe that they're so smart and highly sensitive to that temperature. And you talk about winter and the importance of their ability to regulate temperature in those very, very cold seasons because their body temperature still needs to be in a similar range. And um, how do they rotate their heating functions during winter? Because I believe they take turns in creating that warmth. So winter is a very interesting topic. So honeybees have basically have, have originated in tropical regions. And uh, the fact that as a colony, as a whole colony, they can survive winters, allows them to uh, spread themselves also in other continents, like here in, in Europe, up to Northern Europe, where they survive very well. If you cool down a single honeybee, uh, it becomes stiff at about uh, plus 10 centigrade, and they are dead at about plus four centigrade, which is very, very sensitive. So most insects can stand much, much lower temperatures. But if you take a whole colony and put them in in a cool room, you can lower the temperature to minus 40, four zero, minus 40 centigrade, and the whole colony survives very well as long as they have uh, honey inside their guts so the honey is used uh, as a fuel. It's uh, used as a fuel to run these uh, wing muscles which produce the heat. And therefore bees need inside their nest a certain uh, stock of honey to survive the winter. But they make it very clever. So they do not run the nest at a very high temperature through the whole winter, which doesn't make any sense. But they let the temperature inside the nest drop down to about 10 centigrade, which is, as I mentioned, the temperature from which on they get uh, stiff if it's dropping deeper. And they have this 10 centigrade for about three, four days in a row. And then just for one day, just for one day, they heat up uh, to about 30 centigrade. The nest, in order to make the, the honey fluid enough that they can take it up, and uh, then they let the, the temperature drop again to 10 centigrade. So it's like an interval heating each few days, warming up for one day uh, to be able to eat honey and then cool down again. So very, very tricky, very, very efficient. Very efficient. And I was very interested to hear about the fact that winter bees live much longer lives than bees that were born for a different time. Yeah, so that leads to a very interesting topic, what you just mentioned. So the worker honeybees can live for three weeks to four weeks during the summer and up to a half year during the winter. And the interesting aspect is that the fact if a bee will be long-living or short-living is determined by the temperature at which the pupae are developing and the temperature is uh, as explained already uh, is set by the honeybees so the honeybee colony in total determines the life length the lifespan of their individuals so if a bee pupa is raised at more like 36 centigrade it will be a short living honeybee during the summer and if it is raised at uh, more like uh, 34 centigrade, at a bit uh, cooler uh, temperatures, it will be a long-living honeybee that survives the winter. So this is a wonderful and yeah, it's a very subjective notion, but uh, uh, in my opinion, the most wonderful example of so-called epigenetics which is that environmental conditions determine the outcome of the genetic program. And in this fascinating case, the honeybees create their environmental conditions by themselves. 
Yes, well, maybe we'll get to epigenetics in a minute because that's a very interesting topic as well. But I would like to know, while we're on the topic of creating different types of bees, how does a queen bee get created? So honeybee colony uh, has just one female individual which is responsible for reproduction, which, which is a queen. So a queen is not born as a queen, so we have no princesses, uh, so to speak, but it's uh, created by the colony, by the way it is fed. So each young larva in a bee colony gets a food which is made by the bees themselves, so inside their body they have glands which make a substance beekeeper call royal jelly and all larvae for the first three days get royal jelly as a food but only one larvae gets a long life royal jelly exclusively and this one will become a queen. And how do they access royal jelly? Where does that come from? Yeah, royal jelly is created by worker bees, by young worker bees, which have not started their foraging activity outside the nest yet. They have to eat pollen. So pollen is a very important basis for creating royal jellies in glands, which are in the head of these worker bees. So they have to eat pollen and they digest the pollen and from the pollen components then royal jelly is created and then they can regurgitate uh, this and uh, feed it to the larvae. Mm. And the queen goes on a very important journey after she's become mature. She leaves the hive and is accompanied by a group of bees from the hive. And um, you talk about that as being on an, a nuptial flight. What happens in that nuptial flight and why is that flight very important? Honeybees are sexual animals like most animals and they have to mate in order to produce an offspring and uh, this nuptial flight is done by virgin queens out in the field accompanied by uh, worker bees which are experienced with uh, landscapes they know where to go and they go to so-called drone congregation areas which are locations where virgin queens from different colonies and drones from different co colonies uh, gather together and the uh, virgin queens are then mating with uh, yeah, up to 10, 12, 15 drones and by that they get the reserve on, on sperm they then are using uh, through their whole life to fertilize eggs so they only once in their life go on such a mating flight and following this uh, for up to five years, six years, they then can fertilize the eggs, which means uh, honeybees long before us humans have invented uh, tricks uh, how to keep uh, sperm fresh and lively. Mm. And just how many eggs would a queen bee lay in her whole life? So one can calculate, so uh, during summer season per day, each day, she gets about 2,000 children. So per day she lays about 2,000 eggs over a period of, let's say, uh, 30 weeks. And uh, she can do this up to five years. So 2,000 uh, times five times 30. <laughs> 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 it's definitely a big job, but you did, yeah. But you do say that that is really the the main role of the queen bee is to be the mother who is laying the eggs. Yes, so this is the exclusive role of the honeybee queen. She has no different function, just egg laying, egg laying, egg laying, and once the sperm uh, reserve is uh, used. Up, as soon as she has no sperm left, uh, she then is expelled from the colony or killed by the other bees because uh, yeah, she cannot then fulfill their major and uh, sole function. Mm. And those bees in the hive, 
I believe they can tell whether a bee is a queen bee because of the smell or the odour that she gives off. Yes, so this is very important for a colony to know that there is a, a fertile and healthy queen bee present and uh, she transmits this information just as you say by the smell of her body and by certain uh, scents uh, she can produce which are spreading throughout the colony so that everybody knows even as a worker bee does not get direct contact to the queen he can be far away at any corner in the colony but uh, through this uh, chemical signals each bee knows that everything is okay and uh, the healthy bee is present and nothing has to be done to create a new bee. Yes, because it is obviously very reassuring to know that the queen is there because if the queen isn't there, I believe they have to spring into action and create a new queen because no colony can be queenless. Absolutely true what you say. So usually it's not a problem if a bee colony loses a queen because... At least during the summer season, there are enough uh, larvae inside the nest available, and one of those is then picked uh, to become the new queen by the process we just were talking about. But it is really a disaster for a colony if they are losing a queen at a period where there are no larvae available in uh, a colony and no new queen can be uh, raised, and that is the end of the colony then. Yes, and there are some circumstances where you say that bees or a group of bees can swarm out of the hive to go off and find a new place to live and create a new hive, and that also presumably can take away a queen from a colony of bees. Yeah, so uh, in fact we were just talking about mating behaviour in honeybees. It is very uh, strange that mating in bees is not linked to uh, reproduction. So mating uh, has uh, in bees the function to uh, create a mixture of genetic bases. The reproduction of a honeybee colony is division. So each year, one time or several times, a honeybee colony divides into two equal-sized uh, colonies. A new queen stays in the old nest with half of the colony, and uh, she gets a perfect donation, so half the colony and all the combs filled with honey, filled with pollen and brood and so on and so on. And the old queen, uh, she has to leave the nest with uh, the other half of the colony, and the leaving bees, the swarming bees, they in fact uh, have the need to find a new nesting site uh, fairly quickly, to find shelter and to start building new combs and uh, starting a new colony. And scout bees are very important in that process in terms of finding a new place to live, aren't they? Yes. So uh, the process goes like this. So once half of the colony with the old queen have left uh, the nest, they rest at a bivouac. It can be a branch of a tree. It can be a window in a, in a building, anywhere. So they are then about in number about uh, 20,000 bees, very densely together. And from this uh, comparably small number of scout bees then is is uh, searching the vicinity up to a few kilometers distance for appropriate uh, new nesting sites like hollow tree or crack in, in rocks or in any building. So what they think would be good for the new um, home. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the male bees because they aren't really the main feature of a hive. They um, have a very limited purpose and it's really interesting to think that really the majority of the worker bees and all the other bees that are in the colony are female 
and work collaboratively together to um, survive and create honey. But you write in the book that drones, male bees, represent the insect version of the, quote, typical male. And I thought it was very interesting, the types of characteristics and behaviours that drones, uh, the male bees, exhibited compared with the females. Could you talk a little bit about some of the interesting characteristics that the drones have when they are born? Yes. So back to the beginning of this question, how you formulated it. So indeed, honeybee colony most of the year is a purely uh, female institution. So humans, uh, feminists, are very happy about to see that societies can function perfectly well if they are run and ruled exclusively by females. <laughs> um, <laughs> but occasionally, once a year, a small number of drones uh, is created because they are needed for mating. And the drones originate from eggs which are not fertilized. So the queen can, by laying the eggs, determine if the bee that will come out from this is female or male. So if, if the egg is fertilized, so if a sperm is added to it, and you should imagine the micro-mechanics inside the bee queen, yeah, that mm. either a sperm to get access to the egg or not. And if a sperm get access to an egg, then a female uh, will result, and if it does not get access to an egg, then a male will result. Which means that old queens, which have no sperm reserve, uh, start producing exclusively drones, and they are useless for the colony, and therefore the old queens are killed then. And the drones have only function is yeah, to mate with uh, the queens uh, during this nuptial flight, and otherwise they are useless uh, consumers inside the colony. They are fed, they are allowed to eat honey as long as they are needed. But after a few weeks uh, in summer, once these uh, nuptial flights have been taken place, then these bees, these drones uh, are expelled from the hive. They do not get any more to eat. And uh, those which do not leave voluntarily, they are even uh, stung to death. So they are treated then not very kind by the bees uh, once they have fulfilled their function. Yes, and it's really interesting that you say that the drones are quite slow and lazy in their evolution of their behaviour because they don't, when they become bees, immediately get to work and start cleaning the area where they were born like the female bees do. They actually kind of sit around for a while, as you said, and wait and let other bees clean the area. Yes, absolutely true. So, so drones are totally lazy so they don't participate in the important needs and functions that run such, such colonies. They, they just don't do anything but they are accepted as long as they are needed as a sperm deliverers and as soon as this is done they are kicked out of the colony. And you highlight the fact that a drone can carry about 10 million sperm cells in seminal glands in their large abdomen. So that's a, a very large number. When they do fulfill their function, do they end up transferring that number of sperm cells across? So this is a very interesting aspect that you just mentioned. So basically a single drone would have enough sperm to complete what the queen is needed through the whole life. But the queen is mating with quite high number of drones, not because a single drone has not enough sperm, but in order to get a good mixture of sperm from different fathers. So inside, inside the bee colony, all bees have the same mother, which is the queen, but they have different fathers. And the fact that they have different fathers makes very interesting and stable mixture of properties. So they are different. These are different inside the colony. So some can do this function better than other functions. And this differentiated mixture 
makes the colony very stable. It's uh, maybe interesting to mention that drones which are mating are yeah, not very happy uh, about this because they, they die during the mating process. So the mating takes up during flight and drone injects uh, the sperm inside the queen while exploding. So you, you even if you are close to such a behavior, you even can hear a slight blop uh, sound of the exploding drone. So it's, uh, yeah, the life of a drone is ending in its uh, most beautiful moment. Mm. Yes, you say that they fall to the ground and leave their ripped out genitalia anchored into the queen which is a fertilization mark. Yes, so this fertilization mark uh, helps other drones to find the queen during the uh, mating flight because this mark reflects UV light, which is a light wavelength we humans cannot see, but points out to other drones where this fast flying around queen is just at the moment and they can find it easily. So it's again a case of very close uh, cooperation uh, between bees, even between bees of different colonies. And talking about cooperation and collaboration, you talk about the fact that, quote, a community of individuals dependent upon one another whose achievements cannot be attained by single individuals but instead are based on communication and cooperation is, from a biological perspective, a super organism. And so what you're suggesting there is that um, a bee colony is a super organism. What makes a bee colony become such a, a special type of organism? Insects are non-social, so we have about uh, 20 million insect species uh, known to us and only 2% of them invented the life of sociality, like ants, termites, wasps and these uh, social bees. So non-social insects do not communicate about other things like uh, mating, so they just mate and then they have no business to do together anymore. It's totally different with social insects. So social insects can, as a colony, as a superorganism, can perform each important duty simultaneously. So a colony can simultaneously build new combs, defend against enemies, collect food, create a good uh, climate inside the nest, and so on, and so on, and so on, because there are experts which are doing this. And the big advantage of such a cooperation is that they are very flexible, they can react very quickly to needs from the environment, to good or bad weather conditions, and so on, and so on, which uh, solitary living animals cannot do. So like uh, a locust has no chance whatsoever to have an influence on their living conditions. But social insects create their own living conditions and such have reached a summit in evolution uh, like we humans. And so if we talk a little bit about how they communicate, which you were just saying is part of their, their way of being social, you do talk about the fact that they can't hear but that they can feel vibrations. How is it that they sense those vibrations and do their waggle dance, which is one of the ways that they can communicate different types of information? So the vibrations are very important ways of signaling inside the nest uh, across the combs. So the combs are like a telephone net for the honeybees and they sense the vibrations through their feet. So in their feet and in their legs, they have very tiny sensory cells which react to tiniest uh, amplitudes of movement of the walls of the comb. And these movements are created by sender bees, which uh, produce signals like in the context of the weather dance uh, you, you mentioned. And they are picked up in the darkness of the nest uh, by other bees through their legs, which are interested in learning what the sender bees have to, to tell them. 
Yes, and I was really fascinated with the way you talked about and wrote about the fact that you know, we often would think about bees as kind of waking up in the morning, heading outside to go, you know, fly around and see if there are any beautiful flowers that they can get the nectar from. But they don't necessarily have such an aimless type of approach when it comes to seeking out nectar and uh, pollen and doing their jobs, do they? They actually have a set group of bees that go out and do that and then come back and communicate where the rest of the bees need to direct their attention. Yes, so the internal organization of such uh, superorganisms is extremely efficient. So they don't do more than they have to do and they do not less than they have to do. And the question is how this outcome is created and the communication is one very important link. So bees, for example, if they realize that the honey reserve inside the colony needs to get refilled, then there is a certain group of bees, uh, scout bees, which go around in the landscape and look for blooming trees and flowers and, and so on and so on. And once they found them, they go back to the nest and uh, through the uh, famous regular dance, indicate to other bees some messages. First, they tell them that they have found a new uh, and interesting food source. And second, they give a rough hint where about out in the landscape, out in the field, this new uh, reserve is located. And then they continue going back and forth between the new food source and the hive. And this way, in combination of the rough information through the record dance and the precise information in the field, so bees continue to be social also out in the field. They also communicate out in the field. Very difficult to study. We know very little about this. But that finally then leads new recruits exactly to the spot where the dancing bee is coming from. And I remember that you also mentioned that odour was a very important way to also communicate a certain direction. Yes. So let's look at the situation. We have experienced bees which know where a new food source is located. And we have non-experienced bees which do not know this yet. And so there is a continuous exchange of information between these two groups, which finally then leads also the new recruits to the spot. And the beginning of this chain of information exchange is a dance inside the dark nest, and it continues out in the field because the experienced bees release a pheromone, which is a scent uh, they produce inside their body, which then uh, the non-experienced bees follow, and they get pinpointed exactly to a spot which can be kilometers away from the hive. Mm. It is fascinating the way that they use their senses and one of the other senses that is also very different from humans and which you describe in the book is how they see and that they have two different visual fields, one for the right eye and one for the left, and that there is a broad area of blindness in between. And what I was really interested in was that the way they receive signals or visual cues is that they are very pixelated and that each eye is made up of 6,000 small single eyes. How on earth does nature create such a complex being? But also then what can bees see that humans can't and, and what makes their visual perception so special? Vision in honeybees is very, very interesting because you should imagine that uh, the way how plants attract bees, the way we also find uh, flowers attractive is made for the sensory world of the honeybees. So when we donate flowers to people we like, we are parasites on the sensory world of the honeybees. Flowers are by nature created such that uh, they fit perfectly to the visual world of the bees. And um, just as you say, so one property of the visual sense of bees is that they do not see pictures like we do, but very roughly pixeled. 
just imagine that one one single eye of bee has about 6,000 pixels and a camera in a smartphone has uh, millions of pixels, yeah? So it's a very, very rough picture they create, but this is compensated by quite a number of other properties we do not have. So one, one property is that bees can see wavelengths from the sunlight we do not see. It is UV light. UV light is a very short wave light following blue light that we see and the next wavelength is then UV we do not see. Bees can see this and not only UV light but they can identify polarized light. Polarized light is a light which on the sky creates a pattern. We do not see. If you look up in the sky in Melbourne uh, during a sunny day, you see a blue sky and nothing else. Uh, if honeybees look up, they see a, a pattern of lighter and darker regions, which helps them navigating and orientating because they have to find their way home from kilometers distance from a food source they have been. And one further property which helps bees despite the gross uh, optical resolution uh, to see very well is they have an excellent uh, temporal resolution which means uh, fast movements they see perfectly well so if a honeybee finds their way into a cinema in the cinema they do not see a movie but they see the single frames which we humans do see as a movement but bees have such an excellent temporal resolution that they see frame by frame and all these things uh, taken together helps them finding flowers helps them navigating helps them seeing each other out in the field and to uh, just to make their living Mm. And that's why you say it's important that humans don't move quickly and jump back or um, have sudden movements around bees if they are worried about being stung. Yes, <laughs> that is true for bees and, uh, and for wasps as well. Fast movements, they see excellent. So if a honeybee is flying around your head and you shift it away with the slow hand movements, the bee has no aid to find your head precisely. But if you perform fast hand movements to push away the bee, the bee says, thank you, now I know where to go. <laughs> it's very funny. And one of the other really surprising things that you highlight in this book is the fact that bees can detect odors spatially so that there is a 3D three-dimensional perception of odor how does that actually work so we have no idea or we have no chance to put ourselves into the position of a bee and try to imagine how a bee would uh, would experience a world of smells in 3d so we know that bees can do this from behavioral experiments when we study bees in experiments where they have to solve the tasks in which 3D smell plays an important role and we know it from a study of the brain of the bee inside uh, their heads they have uh, special regions in their brain which are specialized for uh, detecting smell and so from studying such neuronal basis of smell we also can make these statements but as i said it's impossible for us to imagine how a world would be in which you could even smell spatially it's really hard to imagine that and have a, a big enough imagination to even conceive of what that would be like. And you talk about another great feature of bees that have really been discovered in the laboratory or scientifically, as you've been referring to, and that a lot of scientists have found out that honeybees can learn certain things and have longer term memories. Yeah, so the intelligence of honeybees is really amazing. So they learn very, very quickly, like for example, a young honeybee, which is out on their first flight, has no experience before, for the first time in her life lands at, uh, let's say, at an apple tree and instantly learns how the flower on an apple tree, the bloom on an apple tree is looking like and how the smell of apple tree is. And this one contact 
first uh, first contact with an apple tree she never will forget in her whole life so they very very quickly they only need to uh, one training session and then they never forget it and so the fast learning is one very exciting ability of uh, honeybee intelligence but there is much much more so for example honeybees uh, have even abstract concepts so they can you you can and this is an experiment which is done by a group of uh, scientists led by a young australian woman um, you can train honeybees uh, to distinguish between the style and artwork of let's say uh, picasso and uh, monet and uh, once the bee learns the specific features of a Picasso painting, she is able to detect this even among pictures she never has seen before. So this, yeah, true case of uh, bee intelligence. It is fascinating and amazing, really. And that biologist you're mentioning is Judith Reinhardt from Australia. And one of the things that uh, is particularly interesting to me is you've talked about the fact that bees have this great internal biology and that they can produce a range of things like wax, but their biology um, is very important in creating other products or at least in processing other products in able to create new things such as propolis. Yes. Propolis is a substance which is created by vegetation, so the parts of trees, for example, in spring, they are covered with propolis and trees and bushes create this as a defense against bacteria and uh, fungi. And bees collect this material and use it inside the nest for the same purpose that is used by the trees and bushes. So they cover cells in which young bees or larvae are raised with wallpaper, so to speak, of propolis, which then prevents yeah, infections, bacterial and fungal infections. Mm. And it's a very strong adhesive because you talk about the fact that beekeepers require very strong tools in order to get past the propolis that's a very strong adhesive in the hive. Yes, absolutely true what you say. And this uh, leads to still not solved mysterium, how bees can handle this. So if you, if you touch propolis with your hands, first propolis, it's uh, stuck at your fingers like a glue. And uh, then you watch bees manipulating it with their mouse parts and with their legs and their feet and they do not get stuck to it. So it's really, it, it, it shall be a very interesting question for people who try to learn from biology, maybe invent a new kind of glue. And because you talked there about the fact that it's very important in killing off bacteria and fungi as well as um, viruses, what are some of the threats that bees face nowadays in terms of their survival? Um, obviously not just humans taking their honey or interfering with their combs, but are there other things that are really affecting the way that bees survive and operate during the year? So the of uh, threats and dangers and risks for bee colonies is very important because we need honeybees as pollinators for fruit and vegetable. And so there is a bunch of problems which bees uh, face nowadays in addition to what bees know since uh, millions of years. So since millions of years they have their diseases like viruses and bacteria and so on and so on and they learned how to come along with with this during evolution but nowadays there are new problems for the bees which they have not been faced before with like mite called varroa it's a small animal related to spiders about one to two millimeters in size which uh, lives in good uh, harmony with Asian honeybee uh, species. And from there, it was transferred onto honeybee species we and you in Australia are working with, which have not been known before. And this is a big, big problem for the honeybees and for the beekeepers. Other problems for honeybees are modern agriculture, 
which has, for example, big monocultures uh, here in Europe, and these big monocultures don't offer the honeybee a big variety of foods they need for staying healthy and the use of agrochemicals, uh, which are made to kill insects. And as uh, honeybees are also insects, they are also hit by those. So it's a bunch of problems which all together yeah, are not too fortunate and makes it necessary to think about what can be done about it and what solutions can be put up to reduce all these problems uh, for honeybees. And you do talk about the fact that there are even a range of chemicals that um, don't immediately kill or harm bees, but over time can become lethal and build up. Yes. So chemicals and honeybees is a very complex topic. As I mentioned, uh, no one should be surprised that honeybees are killed by chemicals which are used by farmers to kill insects, yeah, to kill those insects which uh, destroy our food. Mm. And as, as soon as bees get in contact with these poisons, uh, they also get in trouble. And, but it need not to kill the bees instantly, but they carry these chemicals back into the hive. It is collected, uh, it's going into the wax, and from the wax maybe into the honey, which is then also a problem for us as honey consumers. And it can kill the larvae inside the colony, it can reduce the immune system of the bees, which makes them more sensible against uh, bacteria and viruses. So it's a very, very complicated matter for which uh, not a really um, perfect solution can be seen. So there there needs uh, to be more studies and there needs to be more concerns Mm. and there needs to be more discussion uh, also between people who are uh, the one or the other way involved in this complex. So farmers and the developers of agrochemicals and beekeepers and natural conservationists, they all have their perspectives. And finally, there is a big need for a solution which fulfills most of the needs specifically by the bees. Yes. And if we talk a little bit about the wild bees, you say that there are about 560 different species of wild bees just in Germany and that they also have a very special function and that um, they have a highly specialised need and they really look at very specific plants and pollinate those plants. So presumably, you know, we need to also think um, beyond honeybees and look at the solitary or single bees that you also describe. Yes, it's absolutely correct what you say, and uh, one can even put the scope a bit wider. It also affects uh, most other insects uh, and bird species and reptilia species and so on and so on and so on. So basically our nature, our biosphere, which is our home, the home of of us uh, humans, it is not uh, safe any longer, and we have to do a lot about to prevent really disasters and catastrophes and the honeybee in my perspective is a perfect how shall I say instrument to uh, make people aware of all these problems and when we find uh, people like this highly motivated and uh, very impressively working beekeepers which take care for their bees, then automatically you take care for all other uh, living individuals around. So whatever you do for the good of honeybees automatically is good uh, for solitary bees and automatically is good for birds and reptiles and so on and so on and so on. That's a really great point. And you do raise a bit of a moral or ethical dilemma when it comes to humans and our interaction with honeybees and provide some of the most, I guess, extreme examples of where humans are manipulating honeybees for their own commercial gains, which is, um, as an example, in America, you describe um, how 
bee colonies are put into trucks and driven around the whole of America. They can sometimes travel up to 12,000 kilometres every year and they're put into these different locations, as you say, to pollinate different food types that are growing in America. Do you think this is a very a wider problem in other countries and that there needs to be more regulation around how we utilise honeybees? To my knowledge, it's only such extreme in that case you just uh, described. So here from my uh, group of co-workers, we are very well linked uh, globally through a lot of uh, institutions, uh, nature conservation uh, institutions and beekeepers and so on and so on and so on. And I am not worried about that most of them treat bees in a very respectful manner and uh, are motivated very much not to gain as much profit as possible from the bees, but really to respect them as a very important link in a complicated natural network and also to to accept uh, how we depend on the bees. And uh, it's not only our dependence on the activity of bees for our food production, but it's also the fact that bees are very uh, good indicators of the condition of uh, the world in which we are living and our children will be living. And um, when organisms like honeybees give us signs uh, that they come in trouble, we really should think about uh, what we are doing to ourselves. And you raise there a great point that there are many, many passionate beekeepers who uh, have a very strong emotional connection or bond with the bees that they um, work with and look after and um, that that is something of a a strong passion or hobby for many people around the world. Yes. So uh, I don't know the number for Australia, but in in Germany we have about uh, 100,000 passionate beekeepers uh, globally. I think it should be about 30 million, but I'm not really sure about this number. And they are now so important, their activity is so important, because the world in which uh, the honeybees are living is not the same like uh, 30 million years ago. But we humans shaped it such uh, that bees now need our support to make their living. We don't find enough hollow trees. We don't find enough diversified food for them, and so on and so on. So uh, honeybees in modern societies, human societies, depend on humans as much as humans depend on the bees. That's a really lovely way of putting that. Thank you, Jürgen. And before I let you go, um, there is something that's been very, very important in Australia. I'm not sure whether you've seen the news from here that there have been many cases where the honey that we're collecting from honeybees has been combined with other types of syrups in order to boost the number of honey that we're essentially selling to consumers. And um, that German labs, such as uh, one over there called QSI, have been playing an important role in testing the honey that uh, Australia is producing to see whether any of the honey products that are being sold in supermarkets, for example, are 100% honey or whether they have other undisclosed products in them. Yeah, so unfortunately uh, it is the case, what you say, that uh, the fact that we increasingly increasingly find very strange, to phrase it carefully, very strange behaviors of food producers, so they also do not stop at honey, yeah, so Mm. you see this with with meat and with vegetables and with fruit and so on and so on, always uh, to be let back. Yeah, to uh, maximization of profit, yeah, and it's, it's horrible, it's, it's very bad, because honey is, is one of the oldest perfect, uh, perfect food for humans, yeah, even before humans uh, invented the fire and stuff. I mean, honey existed uh, since the beginning of mankind, and I'm sure that our uh, ancestors uh, millions of years ago they thought they are in paradise when they when they hit a nest of bees with uh, honey compared to the, the other uh, food that they had by these uh, times. 
honey is honey is healthy and honey is also for our senses. There's a smell and the scent and so on. It's, it's just wonderful. And I find it horrible that people uh, who are ruthless enough to trick and uh, to be uh, to be not uh, honest uh, even do not stop uh, at honey. Yes, exactly. I know that you are studying bees still and uh, have created a great program that is an international program that will be launched uh, officially in 2019. Could you share with us some of the things that that group will be studying and how you will be engaging with the, the broader public in finding out more about honeybees? Yeah, thank you for giving me the chance uh, to talk about this project. Uh, we call it V4B, and uh, the idea is to have a standard beehive equipped with uh, technology like we measure temperature and humidity and uh, weight development and so on and so on for inside the colony, and we measure environmental factors um, which are also uh, affecting us ourselves. And these standardized hives, uh, which uh, are put up such that even non-experienced beekeepers can uh, work with it, are distributed now globally uh, to schools and to universities and uh, to museums and so on and so on. And all these data uh, are running then uh, here into our Würzburg University to the uh, IT department. And the IT department processes it uh, that each uh, participant can have a look at his own data and compare the data with others. And finally, finally, with uh, modern IT tools like uh, deep learning and big data analysis, we hope that we learn uh, a bit more about the needs of this highly complex superorganism bee colony embedded in different uh, environments and this project can from the beginning on be used uh, in schools for teaching and it's uh, I, I think it's very exciting and uh, on the long run with the data we get uh, should also serve as a basis uh, for uh, beekeepers and finally also uh, support the bees uh, because if we support the bees uh, we support ourselves Jürgen, you have made me very passionate and excited about bees and I definitely won't be looking at another bee the same way again and um, <laughs> I've already started taking photos of bees um, getting the nectar from flowers because I'm thinking how fascinating it is and what they must be experiencing. So I really appreciate just how much your science and your your book um, with Deirdrick has opened my eyes and I hope it opens a lot more other uh, people's eyes to just how fascinating and also how important honeybees are for humans and how special they are in and of themselves and that um, and even if we didn't get honey from them that they are very very important and special in their own way Um, so thank you for your passion and your expertise on this thank you much it was really a pleasure talking to you and uh yeah, while, while we were talking, um, I, I even could sense uh, through the telephone across uh, 20,000 kilometers uh, that uh, maybe you are now really also honeybee infected. <laughs> you, you sense correctly. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. My pleasure, Amy. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.